Welcome to another episode of Cranked and Ranked. I'm Stephen, here to uh, welcome you as always, and with me as always is Mr. Eddie Sparks. And as usual, we are going to be ranking some albums, and today we decided to hop back into ranking uh, our favorite albums of a particular year. And this time we decided to tackle the year 1991. I was 13 years old in 1991. You <laughs> were negative something. Seven. <laughs> negative, negative seven. seven. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and 1991 was, was quite a big year for rock and metal. It, 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 it a lot happened. And Huge. so um, this should be an interesting one. Uh, do you have, any, you have anything to say before we get going here? Um. I would go so far as to say, you know, 1991 is an extremely transformative year because, you know, obviously with 1990, the first year of the 90s, it was still very 80s and you had it pretty much everything that had kind of peaked in the late 80s continued over until about 1992 when it was like kind of fully gone. Um, you know, you had a little bit of bleed over into 93, but aside from that, you know, pretty much the nineties were in full swing by the second half of 91. And there's a big date in there. Um, September 24th, uh, 91 specifically where, uh, nevermind bad motor finger and blood sugar, sex magic all came out on the same day. Yeah, that's 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 quite a release day. That <laughs> right it, it is. You know, you got three iconic '90s albums all released in not only the same year, not even the same week, the same day. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So um, a lot of things happened, and um, before we get into much to talking about what came out that year because we may end up getting diving into some of these albums who yeah. knows um so yeah we're going to be running down our top five albums of 1991 um and i i'm going to preface it by by saying um these are not the best albums of 1991 or i mean to us they are but um I feel like when we rank things like this, um, there, there's a, there's personal opinions, obviously. Um, but I think for me, especially there's a lot of nostalgia involved in it. So, um, so instead of calling them the best, I would call them my favorites. And, uh, so let's just, let's just get started, sir. You want to begin with your number five of 1991. Okay, 1990 motherfucking one. Woo! That's that's a little, uh, N.W.A reference in there oh yeah but uh unfortunately they they didn't make my list this time but um here we go my number five of 1991 slave to the grind by skid row all right okay so this paired with their debut was my introduction to glam metal um it's a much heavier and grittier take on it but it is still at its heart an an 80s style hard rock glam metal album, even if it does have some added dirt in there 
And um, again, you know, I, I would, I would, I'm gonna almost just leave the glam word out of it altogether and just it's 80s yeah. hard rock. Like there's, there. I mean, it's a, it is a pretty fucking heavy album. It is, you know, and that, that's that's what I that's why I say it's such a gritty version of that kind of 80s hard rock sound that you think damn did you know they started their guitars started taking steroids after their first album <laughs> you know um and obviously they would continue to get heavier on on the next album but th- this one here has that perfect um blend of 90s grit with 80s pop metal sensibility so it's got excellent performances it's produced really well um the title track on the album I don't know if you know this, but um, the title track on the album, Slave to the Grind, is the demo version. They couldn't match the intensity of the demo in any future recordings of it. So, so every part of it, even even Baz's vocals, that's I, all, it's all demo? So. That, that's that, insane. Yeah, Slave to the Grind, the title track of that record, is the demo version of the song. They that's just, a killer song, too. They, they could... They could not match the aggression. And for a demo as well, it sounds insanely good. So they must have remastered that thing into the fucking ground. <laughs> you know? Well, they, but, also, they may have done their demos in the studio where they ended up recording it anyway. I mean, some bands do that. Yeah. Like They'll get comfortable with the studio doing demo versions of songs they're going to re-record anyway. So uh, it could be the case there. Yeah, but um, fun little fact there. I, I just thought it would be... Fun to point out, but um, that's, yeah. that's fucking cool. Yeah, th- this album, you know, obviously we don't do as much of a track by track on these ones because, you know, we like to reserve that for the more band oriented ones so that we can go into a bit more of a deep dive. But, um, you know, the track listing, and I know it's a heavier album, they've still got a lot of the ballads intact as well. And um, the songwriting on here is insanely good. You know, it's, they're they're interesting listens, and the riffs, and the vocals, and just the utter groove that they've got going on. It's just such a badass record. Yeah, you know. I think you should also point out that even though there are ballads, they're all very dark. Like yeah. they're even in subject matter and in tone, they're not love songs. Oh, yeah. If I remember right, two. Are two of them about addiction or something like that? It's like um, mm. they they tackled some heavy subjects, uh, I believe, um, especially in I think "Wasted Time" is the one that's uh, that, I, that is about yeah. addiction. Um, I love that. But, I love that song. Yeah, it's great. But yeah, they even even the ballad side of Skid Row was pretty heavy on this record. Oh, for sure. And you know, when I when I was first getting into. Um, this kind of music, you know, like the eighties hard rock and the glam stuff. And it, I never noticed at the time how big a jump slave to the grind was from their first album until I really began to analyze it and think, you know, Holy shit, they were doing, you know, youth gone wild on the first album. And now they've got like, you know, threat mud kicker, you know, get the fuck out. These are such aggressive. They're much more aggressive in tone. Yeah. um, And I do think it had to do with, because if I remember right, I remember seeing uh, footage of Skid Row on tour, and I believe it was in like 1990, and they were blasting Slayer. 
And so yeah. I'm all like, oh, well, and, and obviously a couple of the members of Skid Row are, are way into like punk and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So it seemed like it was only a matter of time before, you know, the heavier side really took precedence over uh, the sort of regular 80s hard rock sound. Yeah. And I feel like they kind of did to a lesser extent, but they kind of did what Pantera did because they hung out on tour as well. They toured with them. Yeah. Yeah. I think on the Slave to the Grind tour, Pantera was with them. I think so. Yeah. Something like that. So I, I would, I would hazard a guess that Cowboys from Hell had like a, a influence there because Cowboys from Hell came out the year before. Um, also, uh, another fun fact that you may not know, cause you're on that side of the pond, um, in America in 1991, they, they began doing a, uh, uh, for, for sales figures, they started, I think that's, it was sound scan that started in 1991, which was so essentially Nielsen thing. Yeah. Which yeah, was N- essentially, um, instead of having reports from people at stores about what was selling, which could easily be fudged. They started using the scans of the barcodes at every store. So they would know, they would have a closer idea of what album sold the most. And the very first number one of that era was slave to the grind. It came out and it was the number one album in the country. Like not, not rock album. It was the number one selling album in the country according to SoundScan. So it was like a legit win for heavy music at that point. Wow. I, I, I didn't even know that. Yeah. So, so that was a, that was a big deal. And then, and then a few years later, uh, Pantera far beyond driven is number one, um, yeah. in, in the country. So, um, so that's the, one of those things where, um, people, people will, I, I guess always say that Pantera, you know, was a band that kept metal going in the nineties, but I think, you know, there were other bands that ended up having some pretty big wins around the time that the grunge thing was bubbling up and Slave to the Grind. I mean, I don't know. I listen to Slave to the Grind now and I'm like, man, it, 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 I, don't, I, don't, I don't get how the album was number one. It's a great album. But just thinking about the American public, that just gives you an idea of how high the, 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 the love of rock and heavy music was at that time. So yeah. that's pretty cool. Something that's always weird for me to hear because, you know, I never actually, you know, experienced it firsthand the first time around. But it always it always kind of bothers me when people turn around and say grunge killed metal in the 90s, because I think, yeah, but there's so many great 90s metal albums. Well, yeah. And and plus, if you look at a lot of the 80s bands, they were already changing their style and their sound a little bit by 1990 and some of them were just fizzling out on their own so if you want to say that grunge killed like hair metal or whatever it was literally like walking up to a person that's already been shot and then kicking their face in because it's like they were already dying (laughs) so and grunge was just the thing that said okay let's just let's finally just get rid of this put it out um, of its misery. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that that's a that's an argument made by people who really don't dive very deep into the music they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. So. I, it makes me feel like as well they have this idea that, you know, metal was exclusively this like you were either doing the the Dungeons and Dragons thing or you were doing 
the cocaine hairspray thing. Yeah. Like there was there was no there was no shorts wearing, you know, I'm just gonna get up there and fucking rock because fuck it kind of mentality, I guess. And until bands like, you know, Metallica broke through with the Black Album and Pantera as well. I feel like people tend to have this very narrow-minded view that grunge killed all metal, but a lot of the grunge bands had metal elements in them, and that always confused me as well. I, I think it has to do with what happened later, and not necessarily those the, those grunge bands that were the big deal in the, in like the early to mid '90s, because I think that in general the the popularity of um, rock music that was I don't know, for lack of a better term, played by virtuosos. Um, that that kind of thing yeah. all of a sudden fell out of favor. Guitar solos and and really great vocalists. Like there were great vocalists in the '90s, but um, you didn't have Sebastian Bach style vocalists anymore. No. And and so I think that's a lot of what why people who are fans of that music get bent out of shape because all of a sudden this stuff that you and I still think is amazing today. At that time, other people were going, that's not cool anymore. And that was kind of annoying to me too at the time because I'm like, I don't understand why I can't like this and this at the same time. But that that's that I thought that was purely an American thing, but I guess it did happen all over the world where all of a sudden that music was not in favor anymore. Yeah, I suppose it could be an internet thing as well. But, um, you know, I've always thought I I kind of always thought of, you know, bands like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden. You know, unless you want to really split hairs on genres, there is metal in their sounds. Yeah. You know. You know, you you can't turn around and say Outshined isn't a heavy riff yeah, or agree. you know, Them Bones isn't crushing just because it falls under the grunge moniker. Yeah. And I, and I think, I think I'm going to stop you because this is an excellent segue into my number five. If you, if ah, you, if you're okay with that, you I'm go gonna, for it. We we've transitioned over from slave to the grind at this point. So you yeah, go for it. So my number five is bad motor finger by Soundgarden. Nice. Um, yeah. And my number five and my number four kept swapping places, but in the end um, I decided bad motor finger would get the, the tail end. I, I I don't even want to call it that because we're just talking about five albums and about fifty great albums came out in nineteen ninety one. So um <laughs> so yeah, number five, uh, Bad Motor Finger, and it was the the fourth Soundgarden album, third, fourth. I don't remember. Ultra Mega, okay, louder than love. Okay, it was their third. Sorry, <laughs> you, you, you did you did have um, Screaming Life. Fop as well, but that was a comp- compilation of two. Got, EPs. Gotcha. That's what. That's probably why my brain's thinking that. But um, yeah. the the songwriting leap we talked uh, when we talked about 1989, we talked about Louder Than Love, and but the songwriting, the the quality of the songwriting from Louder Than Love to Bad Motor Finger, it is monumental at how much of a leap they took in crafting songs. Like I think that. This album is just so filled with every every aspect of it, not just the structure of the song or the the performances or or the lyrics, but little guitar things here and there, the way yeah. one part will go into another part or the way one part just doesn't go the way that you expect it. They were a band on a major label 
that for the most part made a kind of weird metal album. So, cause I still, yeah. I consider this metal for the most part, but it's weird. They have weird atonal guitar parts and sometimes weird rhythms and time signatures and, um, and a, sa- a saxophone, a saxophone in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then, and then on top of it, you just have Chris Cornell's amazing vocals. Like this is probably for him as a vocalist, my favorite album he sang on because he yeah. shows off every aspect of why he was one of the best vocalists that ever lived. He, whatever range you want, he nailed it and it was passionate and, and engaging, um, and then, you know, hold on, I got my records here, but so I don't even need to look, but you know, Rusty Cage and Outshined and Jesus Christ Pose, like just those alone, those were the singles off of it. Those songs alone are just classic fucking songs. But then you got like Slaves and Bulldozers, which is yeah. just like, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an amazing song. But then you have some that I think don't get enough love that I really fucking love, like uh, Face Pollution and uh, my favorite is actually Mind Riot. Mind Riot is I like... I love that song. It, yeah. There's something about that song. It's such a... It's a moody kind of thing. I mean, there's a chorus to it and everything, but it's more like a vibe um, yeah. than anything else. And um, it's just one of those things where even the, the songs that get overlooked are so incredibly well-written and so well-done that um, it is just a, a a near perfect album, and I I could understand once we get to the Soundgarden discography down the line somewhere, um, I totally get why somebody would consider Super Unknown a superior album. But to me, this is this is it. This is as good as Soundgarden ever got because it's it's right there in the middle where they still got the the heaviness and weirdness of the earlier shit, but also the real well-crafted songwriting and memorable, you know, vocals and, and, and hooks that would, you know, dominate their next couple albums. Um, and so it's just one of those ones where you put it on and it's, you're just like, this is, you know, this is, this is like, you know, the, I don't know. It's sometimes I'm speechless, um, but it's just one of those records that's just like, how, how did somebody put out something this fucking good? And, um, yeah, I guess that's all I, I guess that's all I need to say. Well, that's awesome because my number four is bad motor finger. Oh, nice. Well, there you go. Yeah. Awesome segue. So I'm, I've, I've pretty much got what you said with like, you know, kind of metal and alternative at the same time on this, you know, grunge masterpiece. And, you know, obviously it's riff central because, and they've just managed to put in these psychedelic passages as well. And Chris had really mastered his voice at this point, like 91, you know, you also had temple of the dog as well. And these two albums really showcase a much more mature sounding, Chris Cornell than you got on the first few Soundgarden albums. Um, but, you know, I know you've talked about like the, the singles and the big tracks, but even, even songs like, you know, face pollution, searching with my good eye closed room, a thousand years wide. Yeah. So fucking good. And Holy water, new damage, you know, it's like, I know I've used the steroid thing before, but it's like Sabbath, on a on a 
bit more of a, a chunky scale. You know, I know yeah. Black Sabbath are, are notoriously heavy, but in their riff department, but God damn, this rivals it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, I can't think of a single song on this album that I don't love. It's such a good, consistent body of work. Yeah, it, I, it, I agree. And and, yeah. and and what you said before about the psychedelic parts, like I think the reason why this is this it's so interesting of a listen is because they they'll put in those elements and they put them in seamlessly where you sometimes don't even know that you've gone into sort of a weird psychedelic kind of, it's almost like the yeah. way pe- people will talk about rush about how rush had all these weird time signatures, but they did it so well that you almost didn't even notice. And I think that yeah. sound sound garden is that way too, where they, they can bring in these other sort of progressive elements and it's so seamlessly done that you have to really go back and listen and go, Oh yeah, the fucking tempo completely changes there, you know? Definitely. And you know, the, there is a very punk rock ethos about the kind of grunge Seattle scene, but bands like Soundgarden in particular, and to some extent Alice in Chains, they still used odd time signatures and yeah. they were very progressive for such a stripped back genre. They would they would play in odd time signatures all the time, Soundgarden especially. Yeah, yeah. And and then that's why like albums like this are are albums that when people give them the label of grunge i'm always like ah, i mean gr- yeah. grunge only in that's the family they live in i guess i don't yeah. uh it doesn't necessarily seem i guess elements elements of it could be compared to other grunge albums but um it is definitely its own sort of unique um mad scientist metal concoction yeah. <laughs> I, I would say I would say grunge is it grunge was more of a scene than a genre because it was Seattle. All of these bands came from Seattle pretty much, and none of them sounded the same. So it was just like kind of a marketing thing, really. You know, grunge. None of the bands really identified with that um, term. Really, yeah. it's more. Just it's more like, just like everything that could be considered heavy alternative, I guess, would fall into that category. Yeah, and you know, there's crossover with bands as well during that era that aren't even grunge, but you know, Faith No More, Helmet, those kind of bands. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They all kind of get lumped in, even though they all sound vastly different to one another. Yeah. But um, yeah, that is Bad Motorfinger. If cool. you haven't heard it, sh- shame. <laughs> yeah, go do that right now. Uh, well, no, yeah. no, finish listening to us and then go do that. Um, <laughs> cool. So well, let's move on over to my number four. Uh, and this was the one that I said was struggling with. It's whether it's three or four or four or five on my list. Um, but in, it ended up winning the spot of number four. We're going to talk about Arise from Sepultura. Oof. Which is... Awesome. Uh, um, it... I don't know if it's my favorite Sepultura album. That's what's so great about the trilogy of Beneath the Remains, Arise, and Chaos AD, because depending on the day, I consider each one of those my favorite Sepultura album. And so yeah. um, that's something to be said about that era of, of albums for them. But Arise is, um, when it comes to the fast stuff, it's still got a lot of the thrashy elements from their first few albums left over, but also they start really working with slower tempos 
And there's also a lot of like um, weird instrumentation on like intros and stuff. There's a lot of, it's not just in your face shit. And I think that because of that, the really fast songs seem real fucking fast and aggressive because there's a lot of places where it cools off for a little bit or they just settle into a riff. And um, I think that that's why Sepultura ended up being considered one of the best bands. I think that if they had continued to do Beneath the Remains style things over and over again, people would love them and respect them, but I don't think people would talk about them in the same light that they do now because of everything that happened, even post Max Cavalera. Um, I think that that it really opened up the idea that these guys could kind of just do what they wanted and you knew you were getting some quality shit. Um, and so, I mean, just the, the breakout songs for me on this are easily um, uh, Arise and Dead Ibrionic Cells. Um, the the one-two punch of those two songs, um, yeah. the fact that you have this really fast, like two and a half minute or so, uh, blast in the beginning and then it goes into dead embryonic cells which is a little longer and more of a mid-tempo and it's just one of those things where you hear you hear the songwriting and the ideas and they were just so confident and had their shit together like big time like this was a band that it, that had a had a mission and they weren't going to be deterred from it i said turd <laughs> uh, but it's it's um it's a fucking classic and it's up there with my favorite thrash metal albums of all time um and so yeah i mean it's and it's one of those things where it is kind of the ending of an era because once you get to the next album with chaos ad they shed a lot of the thrash elements and they become a little bit more groovy and um some people some fans say this is the last great album they did and um i would disagree but i would but it is an amazing album and um there's not a lot else to say it is just thrash metal done great great riffs uh great production by mr scott burns who was this guy that um around this time around 91 92 93 if you went to the record store and on the back of it it said produced by scott burns you bought it no matter what you didn't even you didn't even worry about what the band was called or what the what it was i mean what's what did you buy i don't remember what it's called but it said scott burns on the back (laughs) so um so yeah yeah that's my number four arise that is a face melting album dude like mm-hmm. it, I remember for a long time and to a certain extent it still is the title track, the opening title track arise blows me, blows my head off every time. Cause I remember the, f- the first time I ever heard it, I was like, I didn't know metal could be this fucking fast and brutal at the same time. Yeah. You know, yeah. cause you know, Slayer is fast, but arise is like, slayer took meth (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's like dear god and it's so tight too like the the precision in there that you've got to be got to have to be able to pull that off yeah that song in particular and the and their their riff writing their riff writing is very unique to them i feel like because if you listen to other thrash bands a lot of thrash bands fall into the same category of the kind of riffs they were writing, but I feel like they had their own unique thing where they use kind of occasionally the discordant kind of 
core uh, 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 melodies going on. Um, yeah, they were just. Well, I mean, they're still a great band, but they were such a fucking great band back then. It was almost like a death metal band playing thrash. Yeah, to yeah. me, that's that's how I kind of approach it. It's kind of this thrash death crossover kind of thing. And but, I think yeah. that that's I think that that's that covers the fans of the band too, because I feel like they crossed over with people that like the really extreme shit liked it yeah. but they also the people that were into metallica also liked definitely it. so something to be said there so yeah cool right on okay so my number three yep number three okay cool so for my number three after much deliberation i have decided number three is metallica the black album holy shit yeah number three i guess I, <laughs> <laughs> not to give anything away <laughs> <laughs> great poker face <laughs> <laughs> and, no, and nobody could see that yeah <laughs> but yeah um it is it's banger central um i've been watching a shitload of footage from this era recently and um it's confirmed my years of thinking that jason was the best um bass player in my opinion metallica had because cliff was cliff was something else he was an alien he wrote such cool stuff but the stage presence jason had it was almost like having a second front man yeah and, and the, the thing that i always loved about jason was because he well, I, that, that was a weird sentence I just said. What what I loved about Jason was the fact that he was a fan before yeah. he joined the band, and you could feel that when he would play, and it's almost like you connected with him on that because you, I, I'm also a fan, and he's a fan, and he's on stage with them now, and so the energy you got off of him was was uh, a more sort of pure joyful energy than you got from the other dudes the other dudes were just like we're badass rockers and he's like holy shit i'm in this band and yeah. um, and that's how i felt you know you would watch metallica around that time and they were a fucking well-oiled machine and jason was he just fit right in there so perfectly jason was such a such an excellent hype man as well because he would um he would get to sing the occasional um verse of like, you know, creeping death or seek and destroy. And it's just so cool that, you know, during this era, this was before like the echo brain stuff caused, um, fallouts between him and James and other band members and, uh, eventually led to him departing from the band. But, uh, during this era, you can tell that up on that stage, he is having the time of his life, you know, cause he's, he had time to ease into it into the late 80s and, you know, he still put on insanely good, you know, performances through the Justice era and into the early 90s. But when they became the biggest metal band on the planet, he was loving every second of it. And you can see that in yeah. his performances so much so that he actually gave himself he gave himself whiplash and um, <laughs> was advised to stop headbanging. But that didn't stop him. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, black album is a perfect mix of great production, great songwriting and great performances. And 
Bob Rock really took the band to another level in the early 90s with the Black Album, which is awesome. Yeah. Is it... I, I, I totally agree. And, uh, and I, I know that this album has been talked to death by a lot of people. And so anything we say probably has been said by thousands of other people on other podcasts. Yeah. But um, um, this is an album. I, I guess I'll get to it because I'm going to talk about it, too. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, it's one of those albums that um, it's it's it it's it's so big that it's almost like it speaks for itself. Like we don't really need to say anything else about it, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, it's like I say, it's another example of banger central, you know, Mm -hmm. there's, there's five singles off this album and you know, they, they're all brilliantly written. And even the album's deep cuts like holier than thou, holier than thou should have been a single in my opinion. It should have been like a, a sixth, you know, addition, but you know, it on an album of so many possible candidates for great rock hits, you know, not even just metal, but in the rock kind of arena. Cause, cause the, this album is much more commercial than say justice or puppets, but th- this was a direct response to what they didn't like about the justice era. Cause they, they'd made a lots of like, you know, almost 10 minute long songs. And they realized that the audience was kind of getting bored at the shows. And while I, I mean, justice is a personal favorite of mine. Um, I can totally understand in a live setting why perhaps the longer ones wouldn't have translated as well. So they kind of truncated those songs into like a medley and, you know, with the odd, you know, one would stand alone Harvester of Sorrow would be its own thing, Blackened, but the rest of the album would kind of just be mashed together in this big-ass medley that they'd uh, play on stage. And I just love the Black Album era. Just it's It sounds great. They looked great. That was my favorite era image-wise for the band. You know, James Hetfield's Cowardly Lion, Wizard <laughs> of Oz look. I, I love it. But yeah, it's... Um, it's just such a great time in to to be a to be a Metallica fan. Yeah, I mean, I I agree. And this album, this wasn't my introduction to Metallica, but this was when I became a really big fan of theirs. Like I, I dove yeah. into all their other shit because of this album. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's I'm not gonna I'm not gonna interject too much, but um, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it's no, great. You, you go for it, dude. Yeah, I've well, pretty much. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to get to this one. So, um, so if you're done, I'll move on to my number three. Okay. I, I've pretty much wrapped up number three. We shall return to that one later. Yes. Um, (laughs) so for my number three, I have to admit something. I, this may be considered cheating. Um, (laughs) and if it is considered cheating, I don't care. (laughs) Wait, wait, let me guess. Let me guess what it is. Is it? Use your illusion one and two. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> I would have done the same thing. I would have done the same. Because it, it, there's no way to separate the two albums. I, it's just one of the... So yeah, Use Your Illusion, uh, the 1991... Uh, double I, I don't album. know what you would fucking call it. I mean, it's a double album, but it is it is ambitious as hell. Like it is... Yeah. 
that is a band. I mean, a band and a and a front man. I, you know, Axel is a is a is a big driving force and songwriter behind yeah. everything. But the fact that they had one of the biggest rock and roll albums ever under their belt, and then they're like, you know what, we're gonna do a double album that completely blows out our sound like to where now we're going to do these huge seven minute epic rock yeah. uh, operas or whatever the fuck, you know um, it's, I mean, it's, there's, it's another one of those things where it's an album that was so huge that um, people, I guess in, for some of the songs just got tired of it, I guess. Cause they, they especially on MTV, the videos for these albums were on like every day, all day. I can um, imagine, yeah, and, um, huge. So when it before it came out, because I was already a Guns N' Roses fan from Appetite, Appetite for Destruction and Lies, I, I I loved all their shit. And then the the first video that came out was the "You Could Be Mine" video, which was when the Terminator Two movie came out. Badass and song. "You Could Be Mine" is one of my favorite Guns N' Roses songs, and it just created this. We were already looking forward to this album but now the anticipation was crazy because it's like holy shit is this the quality of songwriting we're gonna get and for the most part i would say yes that's what you got um and it was it was a weird thing because i remember um i bought use your illusion one first because i couldn't afford both of them because they were they were released for those of you who don't know use your illusion one and two it was a double album but they were released separately so you could just buy one or the other or both if you wanted to. Um, it's a lot of fucking music. It is dense. There's a lot to unpack in this. It's 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 much. It's very much like load and reload. You know, there's a I, shit I would, ton of I would music. say better than load and reload, but that's just yeah. my opinion. Um, <laughs> but it but it's got that same feel where they experiment and explore so many areas of what made them a band because you had your full on rockers. I mean, it, it kicks off with Right Next Door to Hell, which is a very fast, very rocking song, goes immediately into Dust and Bones, which is like a blues, a real laid back blues style song. And then you've got, you know, classics like November Rain, which is a really epic ballad. Um, you've got, uh, like, what, what the fuck else? There's so much going on in here. Um, obviously, obviously, you have some covers. Live and Let Die is on here. Um, and then, like, songs that don't necessarily... I, I almost feel like it, it's the perfect combination of songs that are so well put together with verses and choruses and middles and and solos and harmonies that it's almost like mathematically put together but then you have other songs like double talk and jive which is one of my favorites on the album that it it's it's the whole vibe of it is odd because the 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 verse and the chorus there's it's almost like it's just one mood and then the song kind of fades out eventually um, to where it's like, it's, it's like they, it, it makes me wonder, like they may have not been trying very hard at all. This may have been an insanely talented band fronted by an insanely talented singer songwriter. And these are the things that just sort of came out of them. I know some of them were older songs. Um, like don't cry was an older song that they recorded for this, but just the, the way that these songs, if if you pick them apart, 
because it's a, it's a it's a lot to get through if you want to listen to it all the way through. It's 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 really rough to do that. But thirty songs, isn't yeah. It? Listening, yeah, listening to the songs individually. You if you dig into every single track, you will find things in there that you're like, they put a lot of fucking thought and had great ideas in a lot of these songs. Now, some of them fall a little bit short, in my opinion. But I I mean. I mean, I don't know. You, it's like the Hard Rock White Album. The White Album is a classic album, but there are songs on that that I'm like, oh, they could have left that one off. Um, yeah. And so, and so, like, there's just so much. Let me look at User Illusion too. I'm looking at my albums right now. Oh, Civil War is on there. Get in the Ring, which is the most enjoyable fucking song. Yeah. One of one of. <laughs> it's so much fun listening to that song and listening to Axel rant about the magazine uh, yeah. writers and just that just. The whole the way it's put together, where you hear like the the bell for the beginning of the boxing match, and you hear that guy say, "In this corner, weighing eight hundred and fifty pounds, guns and roses." Like it's it's just utter fun, and that just goes into my my feeling that they just let this sort of shit happen, and it just so happened that they had all this stuff come out of them, or or saved up, or whatever you want to say. It's just got so much good shit. And, um, I think a lot of people try like they shit on this album, I think because it wasn't as tightly packed with, with awesome shit like appetite for destruction. Appetite for destruction is an unfuck withable album. It is classic banger after banger in and out. Boom. Your, your, your world has been rocked. This one is more of a, uh, there's a little bit of that on here, but it's almost more of an experience that you need to spend some time with before you really start to see the parts that are amazing about a lot of these songs. Now, there are a couple, like I would say that um, uh, Estranged is not that great of a song. <laughs> and it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it was one of their last singles off of it. And it's it's the one that I go, this probably should have been at least three or four minutes shorter. Um, yeah. And, um, and so, so yeah, there are moments like that on this album, but it's, it's almost like, I don't think I would change that because it's like, that's the journey of this album. You're, you're, you're inside the, the minds of, of these individuals and the music that they're making. It's, it's like a stream of consciousness when it comes to, to songs that came out of them. And, and at least two thirds of them are fucking brilliant and then the other third are pretty damn good. Um, um, one, one call out I have to make from this album is the song Coma. Coma is a motherfucker of a song. Yeah. And it's one of those ones that it feels like a fucking movie. But the thing that I love the most about it is that if you go listen to, I think it's the last couple minutes of it, um, the way the song goes and with with the guitar melodies and the vocals it keeps changing the, I don't know if it's necessarily the key, but it's, it doesn't play the same thing over and over again, even though there's, it's not a verse and a chorus. It's literally just a weird rotating riff that keeps going to these different areas and, and Axel seamlessly sings over all of it. And if you, if you really listen to it, you're like, oh, they, they didn't repeat that. Now this is something else. And now it's something else again. And it ends up just yeah. ending the song. And I, yeah, so obviously I could talk about this album all day because it's <laughs> it's got so many moments like that that reveal reveal themselves to you where you're just like, 
holy shit, I, 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 I listened to this song 50 times. And now if I listen to it and really pay attention to this one thing, the song is completely different to me because you're now hearing, I guess a lot of that goes to the production. Uh, is it Mike Clink? I think they did this one too. Um, mm. that they pulled out all the fucking stops. I, I really do think that this is a classic that doesn't, honestly, even though it was an album that everyone got sick of, um, I don't think it, I, I think it's underrated. I, I think it's, uh, it's, uh, just one of those masterpieces that, uh, uh, a really ambitious band, um, could only do, you know? And so, um, I think, and I think it's a big reason why everyone still talks about Guns N' Roses. Like they're one of the best bands in the world. I think if they had done Appetite Part Two, I don't think that we would be talking about them in the same way. So, um, yeah. So that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> um, I've got one quick question before we move on. Sure. Okay. Hypothetical situation. Gun to your head. You're only allowed to pick one of the user illusions which album overall has the better songs in your opinion um, i would go with number one yeah um a number one has even though it doesn't have you could be mine which is one of my favorites just um going through and listening to use your illusion one it it doesn't really have a dull moment on it yeah and and then when you get to use your illusion two I think knocking on heaven's door is not that good. Um, and then obviously I said estranged and, uh, and breakdown. They're both songs that aren't great. And then it ends with that fucking my world song, which is, you want to step into my world. And, and, uh, and, and (laughs) a version of don't cry, which is exactly the same, except for Axel sings different lyrics over the verses. So it's like, there's so much on it where it does. It's not, it's not as, repeatedly kick ass as user illusion one is but it's it's still fucking great you know it's comparing it's comparing apples to slightly less delicious apples (laughs) (laughs) or if it's a pizza (laughs) (laughs) it is it is a it is a pepperoni and sausage pizza and then this one is just a pepperoni pizza it is still just delicious but you don't get quite the same meaty flavors as you would on the other one Ladies and gentlemen, the pizza analogy <laughs> once again. <laughs> but yeah, I would agree. I I'd say I feel like my world is a precursor to risk because it sounds like <laughs> Dave Mustaine doing some kind of experiment. <laughs> yeah, I mean we could we could probably talk all day about all the things. See, that's the thing that's great about Guns N' Roses and particularly these albums is that I can spend an hour talking about the things that I love. And then we could spend an hour talking about the things that I think are fucking hilarious because yeah. there's a, there's, <laughs> there's like the, uh, the song 14 years is mostly sung by, I think Duff sings that song yeah. and he's singing it just fine. And then in the chorus, Axel's voice pops in way fucking louder than everything else. So he's all like, <laughs> I'm Duff, I'm singing. And then you hear like, and it's been fun. And it's like, he gets yeah. really, it's almost like Axel's like, remember me, I'm here too. And yeah. I'm just, <laughs> all right axel everybody knows you're there <laughs> but things like that there's a lot of little moments where i go that's that's pretty funny but i love them for it <laughs> awesome so i guess that brings me to my uh, number two yeah number two number two okay so for my number two <clears throat> pardon me for my number two i have gone for mr bungle 
Mr. Bungle. Nice. All right. Yeah. This is this is cool because you are kind of going in areas that I didn't expect. I, I guess I should have expected this one, but still. <laughs> yeah. Well, this this one, in my opinion, is the best non Faith No More pattern album, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's amazingly weird in the best of ways. It shifts between multiple genres within a single song. And then to lace it all together, you've got these like cool, creepy movie skits that they decided to include to create this really unsettling circus nightmare atmosphere. Like it, the fusion of genres they put together for this album is is utter genius. Yeah, agreed. It's just such a... Let me just get the uh, track listing up real quick. So for those of you who don't know, Mr. Bungle uh, is a band fronted by Mike Patton, who also sang in Faith No More. Um, But Mr. Bungle was the band he was in prior to Faith No More, and he continued to do for a while um, and started doing again. That is my one of my most anticipated albums to come, is that new re-recording of the Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny. Yeah, that's going to be cool. I'm so ready for that. But yeah, but this first... This first Mr. Bungle album is um, my favorite thing about it is it, it's it's a really amazing album, but it's an album that is very weird because if you just say um, randomly, you want to listen to that first Mr. Bungle album, I'd probably be like, I don't really know if I'm in the mood for it. But as soon as you put it on, you're in the mood for it. Like it just yeah. it just sort of infects you immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it, it forces you to be in the right mindset to enjoy it. Yeah. Because I feel like, I feel like the best way to describe it is there is no mood for Mr. Bungle. <laughs> yeah. It just fucking happens. Like you, you put it on and you're immediately hypnotized for like the the length of this record. It is so good. You've got um quote unquote, which was uh the only Mr. Bungle song to ever receive a music video. And it was also uh originally called Travolta. But uh, due to legal issues, um, they had to call it "quote unquote" because Travolta was pretty offended. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm sure I'm assume, assuming you know why it was "quote unquote" why it was changed to that. Uh, oh, shit, I remember seeing this somewhere. Refresh that my was memory. that was the name of John Travolta's autobiography. Ah. Uh... So, yeah. I did. I didn't know that. I didn't. You learn something new every day, people. That's there why you, you come here. Hell yeah. Um, so obviously you got quote unquote. Um, Which is pretty get... funny that John Travolta had already written an autobiography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, dude, you're a little full of yourself, aren't you? Yeah. And th- this this song is just so, so good. It throws circus music at you. It throws death metal breakdowns. It's got smooth jazz prelude sections and this is this is one song this is one song you haven't heard the other nine yet and it's already utterly fucking with your with your ears and then slowly going deaf well that's that's the thing i was gonna say though about travolta travolta is like is a very accessible entryway because you could almost make the connection that faith no more could have done that song yeah it's got kind of a malpractice vibe to it, but but then event very quickly you learn that that they they're not just a one trick pony there. Oh, for sure, definitely, because you've got you know slowly growing deaf, which is this like fucking thrash metal ska 
circus <laughs> fusion thing. It, it's mind blowing. And then you get Squeeze Me Macaroni, which shows off Patton's ability to rap. You know, insanely. This is this is Eminem's rap god before that existed. You, you know, <laughs> yeah. I wanna like Benny Cracker because you wanna like it. it's like. It, he goes so fast the entire time and it's just such a roller coaster carousel egg stub a dub my ass is on fire There's, it, what a track list and the song names are just as batshit as the songs themselves you know i would say the most accessible song on here is the girls of porn because it is pretty much <laughs> It is pretty much just a funk song with metal thrown in. It's a funk metal song. Yeah. Um, it's goofy. It's fun. It's kind of like it's kind of like Primus and Red Hot Chili Peppers at the same time. But um, good lord, I, I don't want to bring up the Red Hot Chili Peppers feud, but there <laughs> there there isn't there is an element there of that funk rock kind of thing going on. Um, Love is a fist. Love is the first. It's so fucking good. I love this album. Like yeah. the 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 only thing that weirded me out for a long time until I um kind of got over it and realized, hey, it's Mr. Bungle. They can do whatever the fuck they like. Dead Goon always really weirded me out. It's like a closed track, but it, in all honesty, it makes a lot of sense to be honest because it it does it subverts everything you've built up to think is gonna happen and this whole album has tricked you into thinking oh okay so here's a funky bit here's a metal bit here's a circus bit here's a skit here's a creepy low volume like yeah it's so hard to explain without actually hearing it but my god you know the the minds well, I, behind I, I feel this. like that was them as a band too it, even like live like it's if I remember right, I remember watching like a camcorder, camcorder recorded concert of theirs from like 92 or three or something. And they didn't play an actual song for like 20 minutes, I think. Yeah. It, it was like a soundscape and some other weird things going on. And, and so it's like they were just a band from the get-go that's like, if you think you're going to get one thing, then you're wrong. <laughs> and so um, Definitely. that's why they're great. And you've only got to look at the uh, demos leading up to this because they put out four, four substantial demo tapes before the release of this album. You know, throughout the eighties, you know, obviously their first album, *Raging Wrath of the Easter Bunny*, was a full-on grindcore lo-fi death metal album that was barely intelligible with the odd <laughs> like four bars of sky in there. But aside from that, the rest of it was pretty much straight-up death metal. Um, and then immediately following that up the next year, you got Bowl of Chile or Bowl of Chili or whatever they call it. Um, I think it's Bowl which, of Chili. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing. Look, on the album, though, it goes like, Bowl of Chile, man. Like, just to, <laughs> and that, again, is just fucking with the audience and it's just to, just to wind them up. And it, yeah. it does this reggae ska thing. It, it leans way more on that side. And then you get God Damn It, I Love America and OU818, which kind of... They're kind of the lead up to what would become this album. But um, there's a great track at the end of OU818, and I can't remember what it's called, but it's like the one song on the album that didn't make it to this album. And I feel like it should have, but I wouldn't change this album. Um, 
it is it's a mind fuck and um there is no way to describe it without just flat out saying you are in for one hell of a listening experience because this is gonna drag you out of your chair or wherever you are and beat the shit out of you with how confusing it is (laughs) until you are left utterly bewildered at what just happened to you but in the best of ways because this album fucking rips but yeah that is nice that is mr bungle self-titled 1991 debut Wow, fucking that, rad! You're you're number two. So now we're now we're gonna get down to my number two. So my number two is uh, uh, less interesting than yours. Um, oh. I really do think at this point, anyone that knows me knows what these albums are gonna be, and so there's really no point in, in beating around the bush. My number two is Nevermind by Nirvana, and yeah. I don't really need to talk too much about this album. Once again, it's another album that was it's one of the biggest rock albums ever made. Um, we did a whole episode talking about Nirvana. Um, and, um, this album was a big deal for me. This album was something that, that, um, kind of, kind of helped me through not only some, some weird shit going on in my life, but also, um, led me down the path of deciding that, Hey, maybe I can play music also. Um, so, cause like, never mind is like the Beatles on Ed Sullivan for my generation where, where you, yeah. you, you heard, you heard never mind, And you're like, I think I'm going to start a band someday. And, and that's, that, that was the importance of it. But, um, I'm not, I can't say anything that I already said or didn't already say on, uh, the other, the first episode we did, but it's just one of those albums that, um, it's, it's, it's reach and it's in, infection of, uh, the rock and, and music culture, um, and, uh, the things that, 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 that were birthed after it, um, you just can't deny that it is one of the most important albums ever made. Um, and, and even more so than any other album I think we'll talk about. This is the one that you hear people say is very overplayed. And, um, I think that there's a reason for that. <laughs> I think that, yeah. you know, I think that, that you hear these songs over and over again because they're fucking timeless. Um, yeah. this album doesn't sound like 1991 to me. Um, it sounds like something that exists in its own time frame. I don't know. Um, but yeah. it's, it's just a really important album to a lot of people. It, to me, it's a, it's a completely solid, enjoyable album from beginning to end. And, um, it's, uh, it's just one. Yeah. I don't know really where else to go because I, I literally could have just said, never mind by Nirvana and then dropped the mic and left. And, and, and everyone, <laughs> everyone probably, probably would have already known what I was going to say anyway. Um, it's just, it's just, a a, a monumental album that doesn't get old to me. And so that, that I'm going to, I'm going to cut it short there. Cool. Yeah, you know, again, like you say, it, it is a timeless album. It is kind of the influential album of the year. You know, it, it is the, you know, game changer that people say. Even if, you know, hair metal was kind of killing itself at the same time, this was a major nail in the coffin. It wasn't so much overnight, but it definitely had a huge part. Yeah. So I would I I would actually agree more to blaming this album than I would to blaming grunge as a whole. 
Yeah. Cause I, cause I think the, 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 um, there, there was a, because of this and, and Pearl Jam 10, I, I, I have a theory and my theory is that each of those albums that came out around the same time, they were both part of the whole grunge thing. The power of those two albums together were able to reach across all the way across the rock and roll spectrum to where yeah. if you wanted something more aggressive and screamy, you were on the Nirvana side. If you wanted something a little closer to a melodic hard rock, but still has not that 90s feel, Pearl Jam was your route. But I think that together, those two albums made grunge the the event that it was um yeah and i think that nirvana of nirvana was the more important out of the two because i think it was the one that you didn't quite expect to blow up i think you you go back and listen to pearl jam 10 it sounds like an album that's destined to be big whereas um never mind they really do seem like underdogs that just fucking nailed it and um yeah so I uh, yeah so so grunge I guess grunge got more popular, but I really do think because I I've I just recently um, uh, through eBay acquired a bunch of old metal mags from the late eighties and early nineties, and the one thing that you read a lot in the interviews with hard rock bands from the early nineties, um, none of them say the word grunge. Yeah. Um they they all just refer to Nirvana. Like yeah. it's 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 clearly everyone saw when the album came out that oh okay. <laughs> this <laughs> is you know, it's 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 a it's a completely it's a like a juggernaut. You know, it was it couldn't be uh controlled or contained or planned for um and there's something great about that. The fact that these three dudes that for the most part seemed like just sort of regular dudes made this album and it caused that kind of commotion in the world. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll happily, I'll happily blame, uh, nevermind for killing off eighties metal, but, um, yeah, like we talked about earlier, it was already dying on its own, but, um, I, I love all of that shit. I was, I was the exact right age to love all of this music while at the same time still appreciating the shit that was out in the eighties. Um, yeah. my, my particular generation, we didn't care. It almost seemed like it was older and younger people that wanted to write off eighties hard rock. Yeah. Um, so I, I always feel like I was born at exactly the right time because I think, um, I was able to view things as this whole, um, rock and roll spectrum of all of this exciting music that was heavy in different ways. Um, instead of just saying, Oh, well, never mind's out now. I can't listen to, to Bon Jovi anymore. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> anyway. So yeah, there you go. Never mind. Yeah. I, I suppose for me as someone that didn't live through it firsthand, when I first started getting into metal, I just heard a power chord and I thought it sounded cool. So I never had these kind of biases towards scenes. If I heard something, I liked it, you know? And that's that, I suppose, could be a big contributing factor into why glam, grunge and thrash are my three favorite genres. But they stereotypically kind of opposed one another. Thrash and grunge to a lesser extent, but, you know, especially the glam guys versus the other two. Yeah. 
But the, even thing, so. the, thing, the thing that I think was funny, though, is that it seemed like those divisions in the scenes came from the fans and not the bands. Because you, yeah. see, you see pictures of all these dudes hanging out together. The dudes, yeah. in, the dudes in Extreme are hanging out with Metallica. Metallica's hanging out with Alice in Chains. It's like, uh, it, 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 it's a thing that was created by people, I guess, with nothing better to do. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, just enjoy the shit. And then if you don't like something, move on. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of like wrestling when they kind of need to come up with a backstory as to why they are going into the room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess that brings me to my number one pick. Yep. Which is uh, the other album that you mentioned that had a contributing final blow on the hair metal thing. So nice. I've gone for I've gone for Pearl Jam's Ten. Uh, fucking classic. I am going to say this right now. The reverb vibe on this album is awesome, and I don't care what anyone fucking says. Dude, dude, one one of the things that pissed me off more than anything is when they released that remixed version of the album where yeah. they totally fucked with it and took the reverb out, and, and I, I was just like, I'm not fucking listening to this. Fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like... It's like they change the entire personality of the album yeah and it's like nah fuck that i want it the way it was originally intended the first time feel free to remix it and feel free to re-release it if it makes you feel better but i want 10 the way it was the way it came out you yeah. know i can come to your later records for more of a room sound i want the big reverb hall kind of sound on this on this record because the songs lend themselves to being big you know they might be they might be in the grunge scene but this is very much just as much an arena rock album as it is well a grunge album yeah like i you mean say. but it's it's easy to understand that if you know mother love bone because yes. mother love bone was not a grunge band they were, no, they, they had more in common with like Faster Pussycat and bands like that than they did yeah. with metal bands. Um, and so it, when, if you, it, it's almost like if you go back and listen to Apple by Mother Love Bone and then immediately listen to 10 by Pearl Jam, you totally get it. You're like, oh, yeah. I get, I get sonically where they were, what was going on in the world and how they kind of adapted this sound for this new guy that was now their singer. And yeah. I, I, it's, it's just a fucking classic album to me. I just love how big it sounds. You know, I've, I feel like the dry kind of production that began on Versus, like, the album is great. Versus is a great album. They've put out a shit ton of great music. But I feel like, and I, and I know this goes against my kind of leave the album as it is, but had Versus and maybe Vitalogy... I'm fine with no code sounding the way it does because no code stands on its own as its own thing. Yeah. But um, at least Versus and Vitalogy, I'd have been happy with some more reverb heavy production. I know that that was kind of phasing out of style at that point, but still, it, I like the way the combination of those guitars and, and the drums really fill out the space and Eddie's voice really you know, kind of like spreads out across the entire mix rather than just being like right there and i i get that if they wanted to capture more of a down-to-earth vibe that's cool but i just love the way their first album sounds they just have really 
there's a certain vibe to it. And I feel a little bit robbed as well that on some pressings of the album, the song Wash isn't on there because I love that song. Oh, because that's that's not on there originally. No, no, because that's not on the um, like original press of it. Same as Dirty Frank as oh, well. Oh, no, yeah. It, it ends with... Uh, release. Release, yeah. That's the yeah. end of the album. But it's, it's like... It, you can't find wash on Spotify, at least, at least the reverb heavy chorus effect kind of one I'm thinking of. But, um, thankfully I buy albums physically if I really like them. So I I have that here somewhere, but there's just something about the way this album sounds that just screams that early nineties, big aesthetic that you know stone temple pilots had on core as well and i'm not saying that stone temple pilots ripped anything off i'm just saying i love the way these early grunge albums still had that reverb and that bigness to them that's sheer size it really captured that psychedelic kind of flair to the music that i feel gets overlooked a lot of the time well yeah it also it also it's it, you, once you pay attention to that kind of thing, it makes the transition into the nineties make more sense because, yes. because it, be, everyone that wants to make the grunge killed hair metal argument, they're thinking that all of a sudden sonically everything changed overnight where that's not the case at all. Like no. there, there was a gradual shift to where you still had some of the elements of the eighties sound and the eighties style that came over with these bands and then eventually it just got very ground down to like a fine little, this is what grunge is. But um, albums like 10 are just, they, it fit right in there with what I wanted to hear at the time. It was, I loved the big production. I still love it today. Um, and, yeah. and wish that more albums had that kind of sound. And when, you know, when I do hear newer stuff that does, attempt to make that sort of statement with with the sonics of it all um i just i really appreciate it because i'm just like give give me if i want to hear stripped down how you sound live i'm going to go see you live i want to have the i want to have the album experience you know it's like it's like it's like you 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 won't go back and and remix Led Zeppelin or, or Pink Floyd because they added all these elements in the studio. You know, they yeah. wouldn't be like, we have to go change that because that's just not what we sound like. I'm like, no, that's the album experience. And that's so, the thing. Yeah. yeah. I feel like a lot of these bands kind of feel like, oh, well, if we can't pull it off live, what's the point bullshitting on the album? And it's like, you have all these opportunities to create an otherworldly experience on the album, right? you're not playing in somebody's bedroom for them. So you got to kind of accentuate things on an album, whereas live you can give a different vibe. Well, I think that the, these days, unfortunately, and I say these days, it's probably with, been over the last 20 years. I yeah. feel like the general public is so um, focused on a band sounding exactly like the album yeah, that's why you have bands using backing tracks and and uh, and vocal harmonizers and other shit on stage because people like I I didn't I didn't go to see a band to hear them do an identical version of a song like I would like them to change it up and if it's something 
we're not idiots. So if you hear something on an album that you clearly know, oh, this is a weird effect done in the studio, and then you hear them do it in some sort of weird altered way live, it's usually like, oh, this makes me love the song even more because here's this other sort of view on this this part of the song. But I think nowadays everyone's like, go, go, I'm going to the concert, I guess maybe because if you are paying $200 to go to a concert, it's like, play the hits, play them exactly as I know them to be played, and and then I want to go home and cry myself to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's like, um, and in a minute when I um, talk about some of my honorable mentions, um, it, that kind of adds to how the production from the 80s kind of carried over into a lot of these, you know, at least up until 93 albums. You know, because those first, you know, 1990 to 92 still had a lot of 80s techniques and sonic choices going on it wasn't until like 93 94 that the whole really dry sound was in full effect yeah but yeah okay that's pretty much my number one that is 10 it's 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 a great record i um this is not my number one obviously but uh, i'll I'll just put in my my couple more cents to this one so um (laughs) That, yeah, so all, all of these albums, these all are all albums that um, I was into in my eighth grade year. So this is, you know, I, so what I say, I was 13. Um, and so, like, albums like 10, and we didn't even mention the fucking singles on it. I mean, like, yeah. even, even Flow, Alive, Jeremy, uh, Black became a really, really famous song kind of after the fact, I think. Um, but the, the vibe of that album just so well fit, like what was going on at the time for, I guess, people my age, maybe even older, but just young people like the, the generation X folks, which, um, I am at the tail end of that, depending on how you want to measure it (laughs) out. But I always considered myself a Gen Xer because I felt very similar to a lot of the people at, at the time. But it just had that, it just spoke to you in a way that other music wasn't. Like as much as I loved Metallica and Anthrax and things like that, albums like 10 almost feel, and never mind also, just felt like they were made for me. Like they were intended yeah. for, for, for people my age and people who were who were going through what I was going through which I know they they were older people and they couldn't have known <laughs> but it just has that kind of effect where it just even listening to it now it it's it's got a great sort of coming of age sound to it and um so I totally enjoy it it's it's my favorite pearl jam album I don't think they ever topped it I I think um versus versus and vitology are really fucking great albums in my opinion and then after that they do albums that have good things, but they didn't manage to hold on to it, in my opinion. Also, the drummer that plays on Verses and Vitology fucking rules, but um, that's for a different podcast. <laughs> right on. That'd be kind of cool to do, like, cranked and ranked drummers, guitarists, bassists. Yeah, we'll get there. Hell yeah. All right, so um, no need to uh, to pussyfoot around because I already mentioned it earlier, and everyone knows my favorite album from 1991 is the Black Album from Metallica. I would never have guessed. 
<laughs> um, honestly, this is another one where Nevermind could have taken the top position, but um, uh, very recently um, I did a an old head on the porch episode where somebody asked me if I could only have one album, what would it be? Yeah. And I decided on the Black Album because I love a lot of the 80s heavy music, but also I'm a 90s kid. Um, you know, I can't. I basically became a teenager in the 90s, and so that sound is very important to me. And the Black Album is kind of the best of both worlds, where you're not totally into Metallica kind of changing their sound. Sure, they, they stripped it down and went more straightforward with their songwriting, but it still sounds like fucking Metallica to me. And so it's just the, that perfect album for the time period. And um, this, this album kicked open a lot of doors for me when it comes to metal, because I was already into metal, but my, my metal knowledge had not gone back to the early eighties yet. So yeah. uh, I was listening to the newer albums from bands. So I was listening to, to uh, persistence of time, practice what you preach, I was I loved all of that stuff, but I didn't dive back into where Thrash began until the Black Album came out, and I got so into it that I said, "I want to know where these guys came from." And the very next album that I bought was Ride the Lightning, and you, I mean, on initial listening, it's almost like, is this a different band? Is there a different vocalist? Like, yeah. And so you immediately start getting obsessed with the story of Metallica and who they were, how they made the journey from kill them all to this. And, um, it's just, it's so great. Um, just the, the, the journey that a great discography takes you on, which is what Metallica does. And so because of that, I became a lot more interested in like, oh, where did this come from? Who Who is this Iron Maiden band I keep hearing all about? You know, it really opened me up to a lot of other stuff. And yeah. then on top of it, like you said, um, it's it's just a full-on banger after banger album. And um, you said a word when you were talking about it that I hate. <laughs> you said oh. the word commercial. Yeah, and um, I don't like using it, but I, I couldn't think of I couldn't think of another way to describe it. Yeah, so I, I feel like that's like saying hair metal, like you know, it's, it's almost like a derogatory term. Yeah, um, because I didn't mean it that way, but it, yeah. If, if you really look at what was going on with Metallica at the time, this wasn't a sure thing. There was no guarantee that this was going to be a hit album. There could yeah. have been a huge backlash. And um, the fact that it's not the same thing all over again is what makes it fucking good. Because everyone, not everyone, a, an alarming amount of people want bands to put out the same album over and over again. And I am not one of those people. Oh, so sure. the Black Album almost accentuates how great early Metallica was while at the same time being a great album on its own. And um, it is just one of those albums that, you know, it, it's one of the best-selling albums ever for a reason because it's sonically sounds amazing. It's, it, it is heavy. Saying that the Black Album is not heavy, it, it just shows that you really have no idea what you're talking about. And, and, yeah. and may, maybe you're wanting everything uh, to be a, a grindcore all the time. And so <laughs> if that's the case, then sure, I guess it's not quote unquote heavy, but it's a loud and in your face album. And it's such a well-written album. Even the, um, underappreciated tracks on it are fucking great. Um, yeah. 
it's just one of those things where I feel like my life changed. And it's, it's so funny that so many albums that came out around this time changed my life. That's why that time period is so important for me because Nevermind and, and Metallica, the self-titled Metallica and a lot of other albums we'll get to in other years and other bands, they all just became albums that I carried with me for the rest of my life. They, and there's something to be said about that kind of importance and that kind of um, influence that music can have over a person. And, and it's that, it's that kind of feeling that has made me want to do things like this with you, do these podcasts and videos because yeah. the music has affected me so deeply that I can't stop talking about it and I can't stop analyzing it. And I will read a, a biography on Metallica over and over again, even though I already could write my own. <laughs> and so, yeah. um, so yeah, the power of the black album, it's just, um, it's just a motherfucker of an album. And, um, yeah, that's, it's just, that's it. That's it. It's my number one of 1991. So, um, do we want to move on to some honorable mentions from 91? Yeah, sure thing. Okay. So my honorable mentions are quite indicative of the, um, state of music at the time. So there's, there's a lot of crossover, so my um, honorable mentions are as follows. Okay. Temple of the, Temple of the Dog, that very nearly um, took Bad Motorfinger's spot because I couldn't quite decide which of them I prefer. They're very different in vibe, but I like them pretty much equally. But I felt like I can't include two Chris Cornell fronted things in this <laughs> oh, yeah, list. Sure you can. <laughs> but I, I just... I just I just felt it would be a little unfair, um, considering as well, like this is essentially Pearl Jam and um, Soundgarden in one place. Also, the Temple of the Dog has a weight to it now that is even more powerful because initially yeah. it was it it stemmed out of the death of Andrew Wood, who was the vocalist of Mother Love Bone, and now Chris Cornell is also gone. So it's just this, it's, it's a very heavy album already. Yeah. It, it's, it's emotional. And, and on top of that now, it's, I, I haven't listened to it since uh, Chris Cornell died. So I have a feeling that it would be one of those ones that just kind of affects me if I did. I, I made the uh, terrible, terrible decision of uh, listening to this on the day he died on a public oh, bus. Yeah. And I just, I just lost it. I, I, was, I was upset. I was really upset. I remember I was, thankfully the bus was pretty much empty. But, um, <laughs> and you're sobbing away. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I was at the, I was at the top deck of a double decker bus all the way at the back at the top. And so I could kind of hide away, but I was, I, my, I was heartbroken to, to hear about the news. That was a rough one like that. There, I mean, there's a lot of deaths that have been very rough and, and yeah. I think Chris Cornell is up at the top of those where, where it was just a very unexpected thing, especially because you look back, uh, you know, the, the way that I viewed Chris Cornell in around, you know, 1991, 1992, um, yeah. is that he was like the perfect specimen. 
Like yeah. not only as a as a man, like how his how he looked, his whole vibe with his hair at the time, his long curly hair, yeah. and he was really in shape. But also, he was an amazing vocalist, and he was a guitar player and a songwriter. He was just one of those dudes where I'm like, that is rock star. Like that is the epitome yeah. of a fucking rock star right there. And um, and so you you forget that those people also have real lives and real problems and sometimes yeah. sometimes emotional issues sometimes drug issues sometimes both um Definitely. and so it's a weird wake up call when when somebody like me your average looking non-successful guy all of a sudden sees the rock god commit suicide yeah. and i'm just like who the fuck am i then <laughs> you know <laughs> in, the, in the grand scheme of yeah. things so it was very shocking yeah, but I, ju- I just remember, you know, fr- fr- I remember as well, Chris Cornell has always been my favorite singer. He's been my favorite voice yeah. of any band ever, you know, in all of the bands he was in. But um, I remember, like, hearing him say hello to heaven um, in the in the song, and, and I was like, Oh, yeah hold it together hold it together you're in public and then when he <laughs> and then when he does that yeah bit at the end i was like oh, oh why did i do this to myself yeah that's but, that's um, rough yeah it was it was a it was a bad bad choice <laughs> but yeah I think the saddest thing as well like just before we totally bum the listeners out um before <laughs> i move on before i move on to my next honorable mention um his death of any frontman shook me to the core because I just thought, wow, I thought this was the grunge frontman who kind of always had his shit together. I don't know what it was, and it's pretty much for the same reason that you said. He always, he never struck me as like a Kurt or a Lane or even a Scott Wayland type. Yeah. Where he, he didn't, like you know obviously he he did have demons but it never seemed to me like he was the kind to succumb to it like he he always did give off this kind of um persona that he was going to be fine yeah you know yep but but yeah um next honorable mention is arise by sepultura hey hey um yeah like i said it's a shame we couldn't have made this a top 10 because that would have been on here. Well, we're, we're kind um, of, we're kind of doing that right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. Um, but yeah, such an awesome album, pretty much covered everything about it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to move on to the next lean into it by Mr. Big. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. See, that's one that like, I didn't, it's not on my list, but once you mention it, I'm like, that's a fucking good record. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing as well. It's arguably, you know, arguably the last album of the last band of the hair metal era to have a big hit. Cause to be with you was like a big song in 1992. And by that point, Nirvana had already, you know, pretty much taken over, but this was still to be with you. I think was one of the top five charting songs of that year. I love that song. I don't care. What anybody yeah. Says. Yeah. Too right. There is but, something to be said, but, my favorite oh. song on Lean Into It 
is uh, uh, Alive and Kicking. That song, Shoot. that song is, it's like a, you turn it up on a road trip, feel, yeah. you feel fucking good. And, and, yeah, and, totally. and um, I love Eric Martin's voice like that. Yeah. He's such a good singer. Um, yeah. That, that's a great album. I, I would, I would echo that statement. I would agree. There's a song on it called um, A Little Too Loose that yeah. I really like. I love yeah. that one. That real laid back, groovy kind of thing going on. Love, and, I live get, for stuff and, like that. And what, uh, what is it called? Green Tinted 60s Mind is on there too. Oh my God. There's so many good <laughs> yeah. fucking songs. Um, but yeah, that's an awesome album. That's a good call out. Um, here's one that uh, you might not have even heard of. Um, Harem Scarum. They were they were a Canadian. Well, they they they're still going, but um, during this time they got their start as like a hair metal I, AOR kind of thing. I know the name, but that's as far as it goes. There's a song called um, "Slowly Slipping Away." Okay, it's got one of my one of my favorite drum fills ever in it. But it's also um, the video for it. Harry Hess, the singer, has the best poodle perm of all time. Hands down. I've never seen <laughs> I've never seen hair that fucking big that looked that fucking good. Like it, it looks convincing as well. Like it doesn't just look like they took a judge's wig and just frizzed it out. It genuinely looked awesome. But yeah, ch- check that one out. Okay, That's cool. uh underappreciated gem, this album. It's a little bit lovey dovey, but um it's done well and uh I like it. Cool. So uh, next up, never mind. You know, classic album, but uh, I I'm didn't su- include I, it. I am surprised it wasn't on your list. Yeah, well, it's like you say though. There's so many good albums from this year. Yeah, and it, it's so hard to narrow it down. Um, then I would say Use Your Illusion one and two. I would have done the same thing as you did. <laughs> I, I I consider them a, a, an entity together. I don't I don't separate the two really. And um also Screw It by Danger Danger. I love I love Danger Danger. They're uh Is that the one with the ape on the cover? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the um it's the one with less keyboard on it, but they still have that same kind of vibe, but the guitars are more prominent and the keys are less prominent. And did yeah, they did they stop repeating words twice as their song titles? <laughs> I, I, I believe so. <laughs> go listen yeah. to the go listen to the nineteen eighty nine podcast for that for that joke. Yeah. Um, Danger wait. Danger with their hit singles, <laughs> Naughty Naughty and Bang Bang. <laughs> do, you, uh, do you have any more? How many was that? Um, that's seven. Like to be honest, if. If I wanted to do an honorable mentions of 1991, I would pretty much list every album released in 1991. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a very good year for for rock music and metal music and oh, as ugly as they want to be. Uh, how did I forget that? So I, the only reason I didn't include that is because it's an EP. I was talking albums. Yeah. So that, but that we we talked that album to fucking death <laughs> over yeah. on, the, the, on the Ugly Kid Joe uh, episodes. Ep, no episode. Oh. We did that all in one. I'm very proud of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! One more. One more. Yeah. Sailing the seas of cheese by Primus. That's yeah. That's a good one. So good. 
And as I flick back through, there's so many, but I'm going to be here all day. So I'm going to hand it over to you. What okay. are your honorable, honorable mentions? I'm, I'm going to get a couple of obvious ones out of the way. Uh, Roll the Bones by Rush is yep. a really good album and underappreciated. A lot of fucking good tracks on it. Um, the, unfortunately... Is that the one where, go ahead. Is that, is that the one where Geddy Lee raps? Uh, I don't know who does the rap at that part actually, because it's a real, it's a deep voice. So I almost yeah. feel like it's Neil Peart or <laughs> or Alex Lifeson or a combination of the three. I have no idea. <laughs> um, but uh, that's I love that part of that song just because it's so yeah. weird. It's so rushed to just be like we're we're gonna do this here. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> but it's got a lot of great songs on it, and I think the. It was it was them coming out of the '80s era finally and making a more of a rockin' album, but it's got so many great songs. And Rush is one of my favorite bands ever, so I'm always going to talk about them. Um, and then um, I I have to give some love to No More Tears by Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, how did um, I forget that one? It it is uh, it might be my favorite Ozzy Osbourne album. Um, you got yeah. Zach Wild on guitar and. Um, Mr. Tinker Train, Mama, I'm Coming Home, uh, Road to Nowhere, No More Tears, Hellraiser. Hellraiser! It's got, it, it's, <laughs> there's, it's, it is like his, like, I think all these, all the old school rockers in the late 80s and early 90s had that one blowout album where they just fucking conquered it and nailed it. And I think this is yeah. Ozzy's um, version of that. Um, and I just, and it's honestly, um, I think his albums all started to go downhill after that. I love Osmosis, but it's not as good. And then, you know, you get to where we are now. I'm, I'm glad Ozzy still does stuff, and I hope he lives forever. Um, I just don't yeah. like any of it as much as uh, No More Tears and the albums prior. Um, so now I'm going um, to take a little bit of a dip in a different area because there are two albums that um, are from sort of outside subgenres of rock that are very important to me. Um, number one is the album Steady Diet of Nothing by the band Fugazi. Ah. Uh, Fugazi is a really important band to me. I didn't fully get into Fugazi until like the mid-90s, but they're a band that as I started to write songs and play in a band and learn how to play guitar, they were one of those bands that came out and said to me, forget everything you know. You don't yeah. need to write things the way that everyone else does. And um, it, it, they, they were just, I, I, got, I got to see them live before they went on hiatus in the early 2000s. And they were, when you talk about a band playing off of each other, they were one of the fucking best. And mm. Steady Diet of Nothing is, is so good. It's an album that, just like Nevermind, the production isn't huge on it, but you can't really nail it to when it came out. It has a weird, I guess a lot of post-punk music has that kind of thing and post-hardcore, like a lot of the recordings have this sort of, it's old, but I don't really know when it's from. And Steady Diet of Nothing is just, it's great. It's one of my favorite Fugazi albums. And then um, a little bit over on the punk rock side of things, I got to talk about the album Ribbed by the album No FX. Uh, it it's so fucking good. And the great the great thing about no effects at this time and the California punk scene, which I don't know if you've really ever dove or dived in to those bands, but I but you should. Um I've done kind of a surface level 
kind of dip yeah. my toe in a little bit. I do need to get into it a lot more though. So really like like the there there are two no effects albums that that you would dig because we have similar tastes and one of them is ribbed in 91 and then uh the other one is is called White Trash Two Hebes and a Bean and that was the one that came after this. And yeah. they bands like them and Bad Religion and then later on a little bit later when when Fat Mike from No Effects started Fat Records, a lot of those bands they had a a metallic thing going on with them where the songs it was punk music but it was not easy to play and easy to perform and it was fast there were riffs there were solos um and at the same time with a band like no effects they didn't take themselves seriously at all and as as we've spoken about before that's a big deal when a band has a really great sense of humor and ribbed yeah. is ribbed is the beginning of that for me with no effects where they started to nail that sound where they were they were um a band that you, you couldn't call them punk but they played with punk bands um mm. but ribbed is great and i'm a, i'm a, i'm gonna stop with one more there are a couple of real obvious ones that i bet other people will comment and include these albums so i'm not even going to refer to them i'm going to end it up with one more Highly underrated and not talked about enough album in this life by the band Mordred, which last time uh, I, I sent yeah. you over to listen to their trap song last time. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it was that was funny listening to a <laughs> funk metal vocalist with auto tune on his voice. That was uh, that was an experience. Yeah. So but that, in the, that's, in, in that's this life. All, what were you gonna say? That, I was just gonna say, but that's not all encompassing of their sound. No. I just wanted to make that very clear. <laughs> yeah. So in this life, so uh, uh, Mordred wore a band that started in the late '80s, and they were they were mostly thrash metal, but they had funk elements, and they were in fact a really early band that had a DJ before it was a thing. Um, I don't, mm. I can't think of any other band in 1989 that had a DJ, and they did. Um, and in this life was their 91 follow-up to that album. And it's just, it, it's, it's one of those things. If you're like an early faith, no more fan or, um, you know, other bands, like, I guess, you know, living color and, uh, uh I don't know, 24 seven spies. I don't know. Things like that where yeah. there's, there's a, there's a funk influence. There's a hip hop influence, but it's also very metal. Um, and the reason why I like Mordred and In This Life is that it, it's almost like you take those elements, the funk and the hip hop, but then you're marrying it more with Testament than you are with like a yeah. Van Halen or something else. And um, it's just a fucking great album. And um, I did a Bands You Should Know video on Mordred. So go watch it on my YouTube channel if you haven't yet. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are my runners up for 1991. So um, we covered a lot of ground here. Hell yeah, man. No, I mean, 1991 is a hell of a year for for music, especially rock, because so much changed, so much happened. You know, there's some key events here which would shape where music would head on onward from the 90s. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like the you you could you could see a, a line that that you crossed over in 1991 where some things came along with us into the nineties, but you can definitely see that that's where the shift started to happen. And, um, honestly, like 
like I said before, because of how old I was at the time, it, it was exciting. The, all of the music that was coming out was exciting up until about 96. I would say yeah. that, that <laughs> you know, it started to get uh, the, the, the awesome bands became way less frequent by that point. And unfortunately I don't think rock has ever recovered metal in general. Like I know there are other big metal bands and rock bands in the world that have happened since then. But to me, it just, it, for something is missing. Something is not there with those bands. Um, and even, even some of the lesser known bands that came and went really quickly in the early nineties, that music is more important to me than anything made in the past 20 years, full stop. I mean, it doesn't matter who you're talking about. Um, so yeah, I guess that's why 91 is a really interesting year to talk about. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I th- I've, I've done my top five. You've done yours. We got any more honorable mentions to cover? Um, um, no, no. I, I, I could, I could say butchered at birth and blessed are the sick, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I had to get those it, out. That was Tourette's. <laughs> <laughs> can, um, you, can, you, can you imagine just having like death metal Tourette's? Like, it was, uh, uh, um, I, I figured that somebody in the comments is going to say, you didn't mention Butchered at Birth. I'm like, okay, yeah. you, you did. Thank you, sir. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's it for uh, for this edition of Cranked and Ranked. We, we tackled 1991, and um, we'll do a few more bands, and then we'll get back to another year. Um, I don't know where we can go from here because we did two huge years. And so I, I almost feel like we should go back into the eighties a little bit, maybe. I, th- I, th- I think so too. But instead of late eighties, maybe tackle like a, an early year, maybe from like, you know, 80 to about 83, that kind of ballpark. Well, yeah, I think that's a good idea. We'll figure it out folks and you will get to enjoy it whenever that one finally ends up coming out. Um, (laughs) But yeah, thank you for listening to Cranked and Ranked. Um, If you're listening to this um, as a podcast, which it is available, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, all those those places you can find it. Um, If you're listening to it there, um, just a reminder that myself, who, who I go under Old Head and Eddie Sparks, we both have YouTube channels um, with really entertaining shit to go and sink your teeth into. So go follow us there. And if you are listening to this on uh, YouTube, thank you and put some comments down below. And also, um, if you do want to listen to it on the go, you just got to go search Cranked and Ranked on, on wherever you get your uh, your podcast. And that's enough uh, plugging. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll get the fuck out of here. Thank you for listening. And Eddie, please take us out. Right on. Later, dude.